everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. Good morning, Edward. How are you, my friend? How's everything? Hi, Steve. I'm good. I'm good. Everything is good. Just I almost thought you were not going to make it today. No, no. Of course, I I always try to make it. (laughs) (laughs) You had me a little worried. How's everything? No, no, no. I'm I'm great. I was raised with the whole "if you're ten minutes early, you're already late" kind of thing. Okay, so Uh, we already started. (laughs) <laughs> we already we're good we are good to go um things are good i just like you know woke up did my little like walk around the park with my coffee and got some emails done and, and now i'm here with you <laughs> that's beautiful that's good thank you so much for joining me today we no, have um, so many things to talk about and uh you know a thousand questions obviously but you know one of the things that that's very intriguing to me is is the fact that you're so enthusiastic, so eager, so full of life when you didn't even know you would be here for real. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. (laughs) I think that, I mean, that comes, I I don't, I don't know if that's a new thing. I, I was a very enthusiastic child (laughs) Uh, to, to say the least, but, um, I think um, moving to New York City at a really young age by myself kind of really taught me to be resilient and to fight mm. uh, for what you want. And so, like, you know, when the whole cancer thing happened, it was like that was just my default was to like, OK, like, let's get through it, figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been cancer free for how long now? Um, It will be it's April 4th. So it will be 11 years in October. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So just about, just about 10. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a weird, a weird journey to say the least, but here we are. We're alive. <laughs> We're alive and kicking. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for that. Right. So when yeah. we think about, I mean, that is more than a one, two punch, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it certainly was. Um, the, the fact that, like, you know, the diagnosis was so grave and so weird and kind of unheard of at the time. And then also the fact that I'm the only person to, like, live this long without getting it again mm. um, is, or like, actually really live this long and or get it again right. um, is is what that is. And that's that's a weird feeling. And I remember my the, the doctor's appointment that I had with my oncologist where she told me that was at my five-year mark. Um and she gave me a little button for getting to five years and she was very sweet. And I, I, I was terrified of her, but I loved her. And uh, <laughs> every time I saw her was bad news. So it was a very right. bittersweet breakup because at your five year, you stop seeing your oncologist, which was mm-hmm. a 
surprise to me. I didn't know that. And so I had this really strange reaction in that appointment where I cried because she had been such like an integral part of my life for the last five, six years mm. that it was just like, wait, I don't get to see you again. It felt like a breakup. It was. So <laughs> um, but when Incredible. she told me that, when she told me that, I was like, I don't know if I wanted to know that. Like, cause that's scary. Right. Like, and obviously like lots and lots and lots of things have been happening in cancer treatment world over the last 10 years. And, and they're Correct. doing really amazing things. Sloan Kettering had the first case of what they were perceiving to be cured cancer um, in the sense that we know things to be cured. Like when you have a cold and it's cured and you're done, right. um, they had 18 patients with different kinds of cancer. All of them had a different kind and they did this particular treatment on them and none of them got cancer again. And all wow. of their cancer, all of their cancer died. So, lots of treatment advancements have been happening over the last decade, but it still kind of gives me pause of the idea. And you know, like knock on wood, this is unlikely to happen. But should it come back at some point, like there really is no other case study. I'm the case study, mm. and that's like that's a really weird thing to kind of live with. And I try not to think about it because it is right. pretty, of course, pretty heavy. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. But you you didn't have your regular cancer, if you will. You had a rare cancer, right? Yes, um, it's called rare and large B cell Burkitt's like non Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a whole takes up a whole page. And um, basically, like yeah. non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is like the better kind of Hodgkin's. If you're going to, mm -hmm. if you're going to get cancer, there's like the Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's divide. Non-Hodgkin's is like the quote-unquote better kind to get because mm -hmm. um, there's more study on it. But um, the way it says, "Congrats on beating cancer and celebrating your anniversary." Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. That's Doing pretty everything cool. we can. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's a. Uh, it was like kind of the rare and large B cell part that was a trick. And then like the Burkitt's like part that was an even bigger trick mm -hmm. um, because Burkitt's straight Burkitt's tends to only show up in children under a certain age that live predominantly in Africa, mm -hmm. which was like, why am I a giant white guy who lives in New York city <laughs> getting this? Like it was very yeah. odd. And then to topple that over with the rare enlarged B cell situation, like that just made it grow even faster and faster and mm. faster. So within the course of five months, this little lump that I found under my arm went from being like the little size of like a little chickpea or like a little garbanzo bean to being like a grapefruit under my arm. Wow. And like, wow. I just talked to um, an oncologist the other day who I just happenstantially was having a converse conversation with. And he was like, oh yeah, some of those cancers can erode the skin. Mm -hmm. And like that was starting to happen. Come to think of it now that he mentioned right. it, I have, I still like have stretch marks over here from where the tumor grew. Cause it was so quick wow. that it was just like stretching my skin out and had, you know, had it gone any longer, like, we would have been having a tumor popping out. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, and, and I want, I want to thank you for being so candid, um, you know, and, and laughing and, and this whole thing, but it is probably one of the scariest diagnoses anyone can ever get. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And I, I will say to that, I mean, you know, I think you just have to look at it because, you know, I lived, I'm fine. And like looking back at it, everything was so ridiculous and so heightened, mm -hmm. which was kind of like the inspiration for the format in which I wrote my book. But like it was very 
insane. Like everything that you would have said to me would have been in like now, if that would have not happened, I would have been like, that's insane. And the the one thing that I'm thinking of straight off the bat is um, having chemotherapy like injected into my spinal cavity, like directly, mm-hmm. like they took needles and put it into my spine, took Oof. out spinal fluid and then replaced it with drugs like what what is that that's like that's a science fiction movie that's not real life (laughs) (laughs) you know edward i i would love to um you know go back in time when you were a little boy when none of this was even in a thought right when you were five six years old where did you grow up you said you came young when you were to new york but and I'm in, I'm in Long Island, New York, and I lived in Queens, uh, New York, for a very long time. Okay, great. And I I arrived when I was eight years old, and I'm still in New York. But here's the thing: <laughs> when, where, where did you grow up? Who influenced you when you were a little guy? So I'm I'm originally from Central Pennsylvania, like the Lancaster, Hershey, thereabouts area, Amish country, you know. Um, so. What I mean, really, like we lived in farmland, like there wasn't really a whole lot to speak of as far as things to do. If we wanted to do anything, we had to drive like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of our neighbors were Amish and we were in a town that was like 2,500 or less. Um, it was really small, which was good and bad. You know, I got the freedom to ride my bike all over the place if I wanted to. You know, me and my sisters were by ourselves a lot because both of our parents worked, but like it was totally safe and it was all good. Like we knew everyone. Um, you know, we got to bike to the pool. We got to walk down the street to the little like deli and and the the grocery store and whatnot. So it, it was cool. Like we got a sense of independence very early, mm-hmm. and you know, much to my parents' chagrin because it was like we don't need you. We can do it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, like inspiration then. I mean, you know, TV was limited when we were kids because our parents wanted us to read, and. You know, radio access was limited because they didn't want us to listen to the radio unless it was like the oldie station or whatnot. Um, you know, and they were just trying to protect their their kids. You know, I get that, but right. I, I would say because of that, my inspiration and I this is going to sound so corny, but like it's my parents. Like they're they're amazing. Like my dad's a musician. Um, my mom is also a musician, but she was a pharmacist and worked for her father, uh, who owned a chain of pharmacies in the area and. You know, she now runs a VA hospital, like pharmacy, and she's a badass. And they both like were working for the most part. My dad had some pockets of time where he wasn't working, but like they were both working full time and had three kids Mm. back to back Mm. living in the middle of of absolutely nothing. So, you know, they really they really, you know, made some sacrifices for us and they really kind of kept kept things humming in a way that we didn't notice if anything was wrong or anything was missing or like, you know, I look back at my childhood and people are like, Oh, you know, now I realize what was going on. And like, I kind of do, but it, it was unnoticeable. Like my parents did such an amazing job at being parents when we were kids. And that like, I don't think I have, many bad memories that were not my fault (laughs) you know like i was again i was a very enthusiastic kid and so that kind of also led to me getting in in some trouble but you know it it was never anything that they did or because of circumstance it was just like me being a stupid kid Mm, gotcha gotcha and how many kids are not i mean let's be honest 
I mean, yeah, I mean, really. <laughs> Kids are idiots. We all do the things that we're not supposed to do, right? I know. I mean, listen, uh, humans are idiots. Adults are idiots. Like, <laughs> we're all just like idiots moping around trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> so you grew up amongst many Amish people. Did you become friends with them? No, I mean, our, our direct neighbors next to us were not, um, but like all of the farms around us for the most part were, and they, you know, infamously keep to themselves. And so we, right. we would yeah. see them, we would see the buggies, we'd see them working out outside, but like, we would never, we never had really any interaction with them. Um, I did have a babysitter growing up who was Mennonite and we became friends with their family and we'd go out with them and do things with them. They took us camping one time um, and they were very, very cool. And I think it was it was lucky to have been able to grow up with around other cultures where like the mm -hmm. town that we lived in was not necessarily a, a homogenous zone of people. Um, you know, most of them were white and that's a different conversation, but like, right. you know, we did have other people with other cultures around us so that we could see that people were different. And it wasn't a shock when we moved to the, like mm. the big town, the big town next door and we saw all kinds of different people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm super, even though the town was like a hot mess and remains to be. So it was, I'm super grateful that we were kind of in that isolated area so that we could gain our sense of independence as adults yeah. and as kids. Yeah. When did you move out of the area? Oh my God. Like as soon as possible. <laughs> ASAP. <laughs> um, I graduated Why high school. Cause there was nothing there for me. Like for what all that I wanted to do, there was absolutely no path for me there. And I knew that, mm. um, you know, I had always felt like I didn't belong and I had always felt like an outsider um, gotcha. because no one around me wanted anything and I wanted so many things and it just became so obvious to me, unfortunately, very early that I needed to get out. And I think I was probably like 13 or 14. The first time I realized that like, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. And, um, you know, that kind of careened itself into me <laughs> misbehaving quite quite frequently <laughs> um but you know i i moved three days after my high school graduation i had like looked into performing arts high schools here so that i in new york so that i could get out of pennsylvania um and of course my parents being the parents that they are and responsible said no uh because i would have to move here by myself at like 15 or 16 mm. which was just not realistic and uh you know, then, uh, like I, I just had this plan. I didn't, I didn't look at a single college. I was like, Nope, I'm moving to New York city. I had a voice teacher at the time who was like, you know, you don't have to go to college to do this and be a performer. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of, uh, that got the ball rolling. And I, I graduated high school May 27th and June 1st, my lease started and I drove my mom's minivan up to East Harlem and I unpacked my, my bags into my apartment and that was that was the end east harlem yeah i was there what, for five years i loved it what what blocks were you on i i, I, was, I used to have friends in east harlem and a oh yeah i mean it's still it's still a cool it's gotten cooler i loved mm -hmm. it back then it's cool now um it was 108 between first and second was my first yeah. apartment and then that place kind of exploded because the like con edison thing in the basement stopped working and we didn't have heat or hot water for months and they finally mm. put a generator out front and it was like ugh. um 
you know, and all signs pointed to leave. Like I had my window broken oh, into okay. through the fire escape the first week that I lived there. Like everything was like, don't stay here. But I was like, nope, I am staying. <laughs> um, and so then I moved out of that place within the first year. And I moved to a place on 110 and third that I was in for about four and a half, five years. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I used to have a girlfriend on 119th. Yeah, I love it up there. Like, shout out to like Mojitos. That place is amazing. Ricardo's, Ricardo's Steakhouse, like, fed me for years. I loved that place. You know, like Daniel Sinjada and LL Cool J would be there all the time. Like, the Yankees came in all the time. So, like, I'm living mm-hmm. on this little block that was like tree lined and very pretty where they filmed West Side Story. And, yeah. you know, I, I got to kind of like see this weird world of like, I'm not in a place where you think you'd see famous people, and yet here they are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting. Yeah, so you, you said you you talked to your voice coach, and you didn't need to go to college as a performer. What type of performance did you go for, and what was your first gig? Um, so I wanted to do musical theater. Well, first I wanted to be a pop singer. That was like the, the original dream was to be Hanson and George Michael. Um, you know, and then I kind of immersed myself in like the downtown music scene and it was bad. Like it was really sleazy. Like, you know, first of all, the drugs, I've never done drugs. Like it's not a thing for me. And that's one thing. And then also just having to like beg these djs to like play your track just play your track and this was in like the myspace days before the internet was what it was and you don't need djs anymore necessarily if you have if you have a promo budget like you don't necessarily need a dj um you know you just need licensing which is a whole different world but you know that's what i originally wanted to do but i also grew up doing musical theater and so um coming to the city and kind of abandoning the underground music scene um you know, and then moving into theater world, like theater world just felt better. You know, you could walk into an audition, get seen, you could sing your thing, whether you were good or not was not kind of neither here nor there, but like you would get seen for the most part. And maybe you would book a job out of that, but you didn't have to beg you. There was no like begging a DJ or like begging a doorman, you know, cause I wasn't 21. So a lot of these places I'd be like, listen, I'm a performer. I got a track. Like the DJ is going to play it. And you just had to lie to everyone and be like, yeah, the DJ knows I'm coming. Like it's cool. Um, <laughs> you know, a hot mess, but right. yeah, I mean, I ended up doing theater and I found some great teachers that I, I studied with independently, you know, and I didn't, I, personally for me college didn't work and i wouldn't it wouldn't have worked i would have been Mm -hmm. burnt out in four years i was already burnt out from high school and i just kind of moved here and joined the circus (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but my first my first job i mean like that's there's so many different answers to this like the cabaret scene i got into that pretty early and i i did a little showcase at don't tell mamas i also got hired to do um a showcase at this club that used to be around called splash uh which was horrible there was a drag queen for a host and like i didn't realize it was an auction and like i was being auctioned off and they tried oh, to get really? me to, they tried to get me to take off my clothes and i was like that's not why i'm here bitch like leave, <laughs> like get your hands off get your hands off my pants um but like you know there were a lot of crazy things that happened and then i finally booked a christmas show um, at a little janky ass theater in Ohio. Um, and I did Miracle on 34th Street. And I was the DA that put Santa Claus away at like 22. Wow. Um, yeah. And then it was just all, it was wild. Like right before that, I was working in a hedge fund. 
And like right before that, I was working in a hair salon. And then all of a sudden, I'm like performing in Ohio, like within a year. It was so crazy. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So you're doing this, you're doing something you love, you had a passion. And you did not allow yourself to be told no. Yeah, like I said, I was an enthusiastic kid. No was not a word I liked as a kid. <laughs> and, gotcha, uh, gotcha. you know, like I said, my parents kind of instilled a sense of independence in us from a young age. And so, you know, no one could tell me no. It was like, okay, yeah, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's just that's just kind of how I functioned for a really long time. And I kind of wish that I had some of that back. You know, I, I think I missed that a little bit where it was just like, you can't tell me no, I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> right, 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 right. So you're 22, you, you're in Ohio, you're working out, you're doing your thing. Did you not want to stay with that company because you came back to New York? Well, I mean, that's just how it works, right? Like you get a performing job, you're there for like two or three months, and then you go back to the city. It's like, you yeah. know, the the audition process is an ongoing, never-ending audition, like job interview, basically. Like imagine going on a job interview every two and a half months because your job ended. You know, like that's just how it, that's how it goes. And I did that for well over a decade. <laughs> that's the entertainment industry, right? Yeah, a- man. I, nothing is long-lasting unless you're one of the lucky few that gets into a show like you know, Wicked or Lion King or Book of Mormon that's been running forever and you keep renewing your contract or Family Opera. I mean, there are some of those guys that were in there for like 20 years. Mm. Um, you know, a friend of mine has been in Chicago for, I think, 20 years or something like that. So, like, mm-hmm. if you're lucky enough to get one of those jobs where you don't have to keep auditioning, sure. Right. And that's the closest thing that that world has to, like, a nine-to-five job. Mm. But, you know, Ohio ended. I came back to the city. You know, and just kept kept going. <laughs> with, with the silver um, screens in in a, is it in uh, Long Island City, right? With the movie industry coming big time into New York, did you not want to pursue movies or not TV? back? Not back then. I should have. I was hot and skinny and young, and I should I would have done really well. <laughs> probably. And young. But... <laughs> I like that. Weren't we, weren't we all at one point? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I should have, but I was stubborn and I was like, no, I want to do musicals. I want to sing. And then like mm-hmm. TV was not on my radar, which is my bad. Um, but ironically enough, that's like all I'm doing now. I'm writing for TV. I'm producing for TV. And, you know, I have some, I, I my book is being adapted for TV. And like, that's my main project right now. Um, awesome. But yeah, I should have done this years ago. <laughs> you know, maybe it was in your time. It wasn't my time. I would have, I would have, I would have found a way to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's fast forward a little bit. What were you doing when you found this tiny little lump, the size of a pea, under your arm? Were you in a show? Were you? Because you talk about in your book about. I haven't read your book yet because. Obviously, I need a signed copy. But obviously, <laughs> obviously, there's but, a shipment coming to my apartment. I'll sign one. And I'll send it to you. <laughs> perfect, perfect. But here's the thing: what, what I read about you is that you know we think about sex, we think about entertainment, we think about drama, we think about all these different things. Everything kind of changed when you finally were hit with the truth of what's happening with your body. 
What were you doing at that time? What place were you in? Um, I was, I just had finished, uh, I just finished doing a production of Hairspray in Ohio at the Mm. same theater I was at years before. They invited me back to do Hairspray. And I had also on that contract got another contract to do another Hairspray out in Mm. Nevada. And um, so I had like two or three weeks between uh, the start of rehearsals for Nevada, which was in New York. Uh, and the end of our show in Ohio. And um, so I went home to visit my parents because I had been away for a couple months. And I was they were both at work. And I decided to like go lay out in the backyard. It was summertime. I like took a little towel and some sunscreen. And I like laid down in the backyard. And I took a little picture of myself laying on the, on the yard, <laughs> which I still have. Because it's the last picture I have of me before everything happened. Everything changed. Wow. Um, wow which is so weird to think about. Like there's a photo from this side, from the, from my, I guess my right side. And then there's a photo from above. And those are the two last photos I have of me before everything changed. And Mm. I keep them on purpose because like that kid, that kid is a very different kid than this kid right here. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I was laying out in the sun and then I got too hot and I went inside and I got some water and I was like, I'm just going to shower and get my day going. And you know, textbook, I got in the shower and I was like soaping up and I felt this little lump under my arm. And that's, you know, I started poking around to be like, what is, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom working in medicine came home, checked it out. My best friend from high school, her mom worked in medicine. I went to her place. She checked it out and they were like, it feels like a swollen lymph node. Like, you know, these things happen and it's normal and it'll probably go away. But if it doesn't, that's a different conversation. And we'll worry about that when we get there. And that was it. Um, I went back to the city, started rehearsals for this next show, and it kept getting bigger, like noticeably, and went to my doctor. He sent me for a CAT scan, told me it was cat scratch fever, which is not real, and gave me antibiotics. And then I went out to Nevada. And during that, like, I think it was an 18-week contract. So during that period of time, it went from being like, you know, a little thing to a bigger thing to a bigger thing. And then, like, we had to take my costume out because like it was getting so tight because that thing was so big wow. and it like it displaced my shoulder which i still have problems with to this day and like it it was a mess you know like and by the time i got back to the city in late november like right right before thanksgiving i had this huge lump under my arm that was like not you couldn't ignore it like it wasn't going anywhere <laughs> yeah. well. um and so it very much was like it very much felt like a funeral march where I was like walking, like marching to the hospital or to the my doctor to find out what was really going on. And then, uh, you know, he sent me to a hospital. I had a biopsy done, and that was that. Like the next week, I was in chemo, mm. just like careening through 2011 <laughs> into chemo. <laughs> wow, wow. So with, with that, it was a buildup, right? And you said it happened pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, the fact to get diagnosed and then a week later you're in chemo, it, it, I mean, that's some news to like really go like, holy cow, what is, wh- why do yeah. I deserve, did you like look up and go, why me? You know, what, what did I do to deserve this? I think that's, I think that's, I'm not terribly a religious person. So like right. there was no real like looking up and, and whatever, but there, I gotcha. think there is kind of like an easy, and I made a TikTok about this and the response that I got was really interesting because there is this weird 
imposition that I think others put upon people that have bad things happen to them or we put upon ourselves right. where something happens to us and, oh, we must have done something or like mm -hmm. something in a past life or like mm -hmm. this is karma or some shit like that. And really like, no, okay. Like it's just this, it's science. We're little microorganisms walking around this planet that is, you know, whatever. And um, <clears throat> this was just a freak accident. It was, there's no traces of this kind of cancer or really any cancer in my family at all. Mm. And it just kind of happened. And I don't think that it was really like, why me? It was because up until that point, my life had been so ridiculous and so like breakneck pace. Like I said, like in a year, I went from a hair salon to a hedge fund to performing on the road. Um, and so like just this, these huge shifts and changes, it was, it wasn't so much like, why did this happen to me? It mm. was more like, of course, this is happening to me. Right. Like, like, look That's at true. the rest of my life. Like, Absolutely, it makes sense that this is happening to me. <laughs> mm, gotcha, gotcha. So, how long would was chemo for you? Uh, listen, and I've I've had many people in my life that has have gone through chemo and everything, but these are questions that either some of my audience wants to know, or somebody who says, you know what, I remember my relative, me, or someone else going through this. And sometimes we forget, I mean, the emotions that go into it, the, 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 the people who are affected because of someone going through it. So there's so many layers upon it. And I, I'm just asking you, and I, I appreciate you being so candid and, and, and willing to uh, peel the onion, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I literally wrote a book about it, so it's an I'm open. Aware. It, it's an open. <laughs> it's an open book, so we can talk about whatever. Um, I was lucky in a weird sense. Um, you know, you hear these stories about people who are in treatment for years and years and years and years, and it only slightly a little bit gets better. Right. Um, you know, and the breakneck pace of it all was just because I was on the cusp of becoming stage two, which is like a much different conversation than stage one. Mm. And so I was only in chemo for three months. I did four mm. rounds of chemo in three months and it was not working. Um, I would have this chemo, this huge mass would like shrink down. And then after chemo was over, it would blow right back up. Wow. Um, and it would be smaller every time, but it was just like this cycle, like if we keep doing this, this is going to take forever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we stopped the intravenous chemotherapy. We stopped the regular, like through my port chemotherapy. And then I went into radiation for 30 days and that was another month. So that's, we're now mm -hmm. at four, four months of treatment and that seemed to work. You know, it completely fried my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, which is still very supple, but, uh, sure. you know, <laughs> it kind of froze it in time. Right. Um, but like it, it killed it for the most part, you know, and, and that wasn't enough for me or my oncologist. And we had a back and forth about it and I ended up disagreeing with her and I went to a different hospital and got a second opinion where I found out that I had been misdiagnosed and that there was actually the cancer had actually spread to my spleen as well, which mm. no one, which no one told us. We were like, uh what? wow um but then once we were in that hospital the prognosis changed and we ended up not doing anything else i did um like i did stem cell prep chemo i did prep chemo for the transplant and then i did a stem cell transplant in july of 2012 mm. and we had some complications along the way that were mostly of my doing um you know 
<laughs> I always say I drank my way through chemo, which I absolutely did. Mm. Um, I kind of fucked my way through chemo, which was not a great idea, but it was a coping mechanism. And like, you know, you look like ass and you just want to feel pretty. And so how do you right. do that? You get find external validation. And I most certainly did that mm. in the worst of ways. But, you know, no judgment to myself. Not going to beat myself up too much about that. Um but, you know, there was, I had a parasite because I went on vacation to see my little sister in Florida. And I stupidly, with zero immune system, went into the ocean, which was a disgusting place. Mm. And I got a parasite and was in the hospital. For, and it just kept delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying. I was supposed to have my stem cell transplant in like May. And I ended up having it in July because I kept screwing up and I kept making things harder for everyone. And at one point, my oncologist came into my room and she was furious and she was like, you are going to need an exponential amount of therapy when this is over because you keep doing stupid shit like this. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so at front to back, <clears throat> once it's once it's all said and done, that period of time between when I started chemo and when they told me I was cancer free was only 10 months. Mm. So it was, it was very fast. Wow. Um, which is weird considering the, the severity of the diagnosis, but it was, it was 10 months in and out. Wow. That's crazy. But you know, awesome for you. Um, yeah. Because this, I have a friend of mine who's actually going through it now and he's also got a rare one, mm. but he also got hit with MS at the same time. Why so this, is this happening? Listen, yeah. I, I don't mean to take away from your story, but I know so many people mm -hmm. that have either been diagnosed with MS or who are like in question of being diagnosed with MS. Why is this all of a sudden a widespread thing? I feel like this is a condition that no one ever heard about. Or yeah. if they did, it's because they knew someone. And now like both of my sisters are married to guys who happen to have MS. Wow. One had it already and the other one was diagnosed after they got married. Mm. What in the world? Sorry, yeah, it's uh, no, it's it's a crazy world when, when you, you know, the, the way MS attacks the body, you know, the way it makes it all the muscles and everything. I mean, it's it's beyond. Yeah. And it's then so the fact weird. to get cancer on top of it. Yeah. Oof, crazy. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot to handle. So what was your mind like? What, how did you cope? Uh, yes, you drank through it and you said that and, and you had sex through it and you did external things to make yourself feel better and feel pretty and so forth. But truly, deep down, what was Edward going through? Um, it was terrifying. I mean, there was there was never a point where I really, truly believed that this is how I was going to go. Mm -hmm. Um. I kind of always felt throughout the whole thing, like, I'll be fine. And there was a while where I was like questioning whether or not I was saying that because I needed to tell myself that, or if I was like really being like told by some higher ener energetic universal, whatever you want to believe in that, like I was going to be okay. Um, but I never had a moment where I was like, this is it. This is like, give up because it's over. Mm. Um, that never happened. And so I think because of that, I found ways to keep on and regardless of whatever coping mechanisms I was using to kind of like self-medicate my mental health situation until I actually found a therapist, um, you know, I 
found things to do. At that time, I started an online magazine because I was dating this guy. He was six foot ten, and we he broke up with me right before my stem cell transplant, which was horrifying in a number of ways. And um, you know, he wanted to be a writer, but he couldn't get himself motivated to do anything. So he's wasn't a writer, and I made a suggestion to him that he start an online magazine for tall men as like a lifestyle piece and he could write all about himself and whatever he didn't want to do it so i was like fine and after he broke up with me i was like and i'm going to take this idea because i think it's a brilliant idea and i ran that mag i ran that magazine for five years and i know he saw it i know he saw it and it made him so mad and i was like look i gave you this idea you did nothing with it Mm. so it's mine now so how tall are you? I'm six four. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which was weird because I could literally walk up to him and put my head like right here, like right. on my on his shoulder without bending down at all. It was the weirdest thing in the world. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Of course you did. He, uh, he it, was a cunt. Okay. He was a cunt. He was a cunt, but I loved doing that. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. You know, what one of the things that that we sometimes don't realize that what relationships can do to an illness, right? Or what an illness can do to a relationship. It's really the other way to look at it because it's either somebody's going to truly stick around or they say, whoa, this is much more than I signed up for. And I'm not saying he did the right thing, but I'm saying maybe he couldn't handle it. He couldn't have absolutely. I talk about this a lot. Um, I just had my article that was just came out in Insider was about this, and you know, it it kind of glazes over the ins and outs of it. But I I talk about this pretty frequently, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I won't mention names, doesn't deserve the spotlight, but um, you know, some people are just not equipped for stuff like that, and I think statistically, I don't remember what the number is, but statistically, men have a huge huge percentage of leaving during a crisis Mm. um whereas women don't but um you know he just he was i was 25 he was 24 like we were young and kind of stupid him more than me and like was not emotionally mature enough or willing or able whatever version of that you want to use um to be able to stick around and on top of that he also started seeing someone else you know which Mm. he then years later ended up marrying um so you're welcome (laughs) but uh you know at the time it was devastating because and i and i think the reason was i i think i knew deep down that it wasn't going to work out but Mm -hmm because of my circumstances i hung on to that because it was a it was a shadow of the life i had beforehand that i was able to hold on to and was able to look look at and say when this is over i get to do those things Mm. and you know in the end like what he wanted and what i wanted would not have worked out because i won't get into it but um you know it it just was it's something that i needed despite that it wasn't right for him mm-hmm. right. and i think i was more hurt that i had to face my reality from that breakup than i was about the breakup itself mm-hmm. he was because he was a party trick like he was this big ofi dude and like you know could memorize and rattle off facts about entertainment that were amusing and whatnot and he was like he was a party trick i'd pull him out at parties and be like hey do the thing 
and he would do it and it would be wildly entertaining for a while but at the in the end of it you know and i'm not trying to be insulting it really was amusing um you know but it it was more so the fact that i had to face the truth and be his presence there allowed me to not have to he might have done you a favor by absolutely stepping away you know absolutely did me a favor and, and you don't realize it at the time right no at the time i wanted personally (laughs) at the the time i wanted to kill him of course of course you know and you're in new york city now right yeah never left i gotta tell you i'm I'm gonna bring something up and i want i i definitely need you to come and join us let me share this with you and everybody else hold on okay heroes rising apex is the highly anticipated business event of the year. This gathering of industry leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, and visionaries promises to be a game-changing experience that will inspire, educate, and provide networking opportunities. Get ready to immerse yourself in a world of innovation, strategy, and collaboration as we embark on an unforgettable journey of learning, growth, and success. Join us in New York on July 14th through the 16th. Go to heroesrisingapex.com for tickets. I thought I'd share that with you. Being that you're in New York, you need to come. (laughs) I mean, hey, the graphics on that. (laughs) What do you think? You like? Yeah, they're great. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too into it if you don't want to, but what exactly is it? It's exactly that. So... My one of my other shows is called Heroes Rising. And what I've done is I, I started with this show, right? Coaching Call. And I've had so many amazing coaches, so many amazing people on the show. I said, huh, let me start this other show to bring some of them together and we can all talk. And you know, I've I've done other shows and I said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if I can bring some of these amazing people? from all over the world. I, I've been fortunate to talk to people in Singapore, Italy, you know, um, Argentina, I mean, everywhere in the world, UK, South Africa, everywhere. Wouldn't it be amazing to bring all these people together so we can all unite and bring energy and focus and business concepts to people? And so that's that grew in my head and it kept growing and growing and growing. And I said, finally, I have to put it together. I have to bring these amazing people together. So and, and I have a lot of authors coming, people with the books, people with programs, coaches of all kinds coming. And so I said, yeah, I got to do this. I got to put this together. I love that. That's great. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll put it on my calendar. Yeah, we, well, we, we want you there. We, we want you to bring your book. You know, yeah. we want we want I'll people. Bring, to I'll bring a box of them. <laughs> there you go. You bring a box. So you're going to sign them for a lot of people. We we want to always associate with people who have a vision. And that's that's what Heroes Rising Apex is for. It's to bring people who have a vision, people who want more out of life. Because if you live your life with a status quo, what are you doing? I know. You're not growing, right? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, and and that's like you know, that's a that's a big kind of like wake up call that I had too. It's like you're like you ain't shit. Like what are you doing? 
Mm. And, um, you know, no one who knew me during that time would have agreed, but like based on like what you're saying, what I wanted and I wanted more, it was like, get it together, man. Yeah. Like you almost died, figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) But not only get it together, but, I love the fact that you didn't just get it together, but you said, you know, I got to share my story with other people to inspire other people. I think that your story is not just telling it because you wanted to say this happened to me, but I think your story tells people that, Hey, not only did it happen to me, I lived through it and if you, if I can do it, you can do it kind of thing, right? It's almost an inspirational, for me, the way I see it, it's an inspirational way of living your life because we don't know when our last days are, right? Like the doctors told you, hey, you know, you're limited. You have this rare, weird, rare cancer. We don't know, right? And, but listen, you don't have to have cancer. And I'm not putting it down, you don't have to have cancer to go make this your last day. It could be. This could be my last day. I don't know. But to get a, a, a forewarning of saying, hey, you know what? Live your life because you don't know. I think that's that, that's why I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, and you don't know. And it, it really is just kind of like a, I think it's – I think – I think on a on a level everyone knows that but I think facing that on the day to day is so crippling that like you know you could go one of two ways you could either completely fall apart and not get out of bed or you could go into turbo mode and like build an empire like there I don't think there's a whole lot of in between with that mm. <laughs> unless you decide you don't care and to me the don't care is the status quo of the people who are just kind of like putting blinders on and not paying attention to the fact that like you get hit by a bus you, you know some asteroid could come and decimate earth some you right. know idiot in russia could hit the nuclear button like we don't know right. and um you know we have absolutely no control over that but what we do have control over is how we not just live our day to day but how we handle the way we feel about what's happening mm-hmm. At- you know, I'm, I'm very much of the mindset that like you can control the way you feel about everything. And certainly like whatever the innate emotion is like, feel it, let it happen. But after that is what you're in charge of, you know, like finding out I had cancer. Could I have controlled the way I reacted to that? Yeah, probably. But like that would not have been good for me. I needed to let that out. And um, there was a moment where like, I kind of didn't really, up into the up into the point where I had been checked into the hospital, I was just kind of like floating along. Like it was facts and information, and I could feel myself mm-hmm. shutting down to like just get through the process of getting started for treatment. Right. And then my first day being checked into the hospital was like it was like a volcano had erupted inside of my body and it mm-hmm. just came out of every single pore. It was ugly, it was bad, it was not cute. And you know, that was, that was my, I guess, pent up reaction from the last like five, six months of not knowing what this thing under my arm was and what was going to happen. It was clearly and definitively in front of me of what was going to happen. Um, Even though that hospital had a really, really bad um, 
let's call it a welcome package where like they didn't tell me what was really going to happen. They were just like, oh, you're starting treatment today. And I didn't know what that meant at all. And so there were some surprises yeah. that we were like, what? Uh, what's happening? <laughs> but it's almost it, like going through the car wash and they didn't tell you roll your windows up, right? Sort of, yeah. And then you're like, oh, shit, shit, shit. <laughs> Look at me. This is my age. I'm cranking a window. That's how old yes, I am. Yes, I see that. That oh, was funny. God, <laughs> Jesus. What is this? What is this? The 90s? But, um, you know, like, like <laughs> I'm a mess. Um, but, like, it was after that point where things started to settle that I was kind of like, okay. Like, these are my circumstances. And, okay, hand me my laptop and I'm going to figure out something to do. And I didn't tell anyone on social media that this was happening. I didn't. I was very quiet about it. I kept it to myself. I didn't want to be viewed as like the sick kid. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't. I kind of didn't want to have that looming over my head. Um, and the only people that I really told were my closest friends and family. And that became, you know, like you were asking earlier about what was what was something I did to kind of get through. Um, and knowing that my friends were going to be there for me and my family was going to be there for me was one of the things that kept me going because in a circumstance like that, you know, your friends leave, you know, <clears throat> partners leave. One of my closest friends left, never heard from him again to this day. Mm. Wow. And, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's definitely the, I think it's the singular thing that kind of kept me going other than like the things I would distract myself with from reality. Um, but it was knowing who was going to be in the hospital room and that we had like this rotating schedule of friends that all knew each other. That was like, you know, from two to four, it's this person from five to whatever it's dinner yeah, with yeah, this yeah. person. And my parents were there all the time. So like my room was very seldom empty. Um, yeah. You know, aside of like, nurses popping in and out for things we were the party room like the, during <laughs> seriously I, awesome. I was at, i was at sloan kettering for almost a month uh it was 20 21 or 22 days and the nurses would do my room last because they wanted to hang out with us <laughs> it was emily emily and jen they were both like six foot tall blondes uh -huh. uh, i think from florida and oh, florida or maryland i don't remember which um but they they would do their rounds and I'd purposefully be the last room so they could pop in and close the door and pull the shade down and hang out with me and my friends. It was so <laughs> funny. So funny. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's interesting that you brought it up because I was going to ask you about your support system, your support that you had during that time. And it sounds, and you said it, because some people don't know how to handle it. So you did have... Uh, an intimate partner who left you had a friend who left and it's nothing necessarily because of you it's maybe it's because of what they they couldn't handle right 100%. So i don't always blame people for what their actions are because i don't understand and I, i'm not in their brain so we can't know why we can only assume and, you know, that's that's a problem when we assume. Right. So when we think about the support that you had and the fact that you had a room that was constantly busy with different friends, your family, your parents coming in and supporting you. That's huge because that allows you to be stronger, I believe. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I mean, sure it did for you. Right. 
Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, they were, they lifted me up in ways that I don't even think they realized that they were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my favorite stories is like, again, I was the party room, but you know, it wasn't like doing shots between chemo rounds at that point. (laughs) Although, although Although it could have happened. Yeah. It could have been. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, I had a couple of people over and, I want to say it was like 6 p.m. doesn't matter what time it was. Um, My mom was there and a couple of my friends were there. And I was like, you know what? Like, let's order food. You know, like the hospital has this whole kitchen. I'm staying Mm -hmm. here. It's free. Let's do it. (laughs) And so I called down to the kitchen and I was like, hi, can I get like three pizzas, please? And it was just like the the smaller pizzas. It wasn't like a huge whatever. And they were like, we can only do one per room. And it was the day before I was going to have my stem cell transplant start like, like, the thing that was gonna like kill me was gonna start um and so i just was i was kind of a snotty bitch and i was just like i might die tomorrow so like can you just bring up the fucking pizzas (laughs) and uh they did it (laughs) so apologies to the uh the staff person i spoke to but we uh we got the pizzas and we had such a ball you know and then the next day i was like it was stem cell transplant time and Mm -hmm. that was also weird you know they kind of they don't it's not like morphine but they give you like ambien and benadryl combo and you are just loopy as hell they give you a cocktail huh oh yeah and it's like it's like from a drip so it's not like you're taking pills it's like Uh, liquid mm. um and it goes straight in and you just get stupid real fast (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah and then they just kind of pump it into you and it's it was wild it was cold Mm. Yeah, it was really weird. Uh, yeah. And how long did that last for? Just a day or? It was, uh, oh my God, it was two days. Two mm-hmm. days. So the way that it works is you you get checked in and you do like really intense chemo. Like the highest, the way that it was described to me is that it's the highest dose of chemo, chemo that they can give you before it kills you. Mm-hmm. Which is why I had so much resistance to the stem cell transplant. Because I was like, if you think for one second, I'm going to let you do that. Um, so th- they do that and then you just kind of sit and it's mm. maddening. You sit for days and you wait for your numbers to completely crash so that all of your platelets, white blood cells, everything else are at zero. Wow. And once they're at zero, you are in quarantine. You are isolated. Anyone coming in and out of the room has to wear like full PPE, like mm. even little boots on the shoes and the gowns and the masks and the hair things. Um, because I did, there was zero immune system to speak of, right, literally. Right, right. Wow. And then, and then at that point, they reinfuse the stem cells that they've collected from you. I, mine was autologous, so I, I was my own donor. In some cases, you're not your own donor, and that's a different mm-hmm. conversation. But they then take the giant bag. It's like this red, weird color, red stem cell things that Mm. have been like radiated and treated and they just Mm. like pump it into you and it takes a couple hours i had two two or three bags that i had to do of that um that were pretty sizable and that took about two days and then again you just sit until your until your numbers go back up Mm. and you hope that your numbers go up because if the graph doesn't take because essentially you're graphing your stem cells back into your body if it doesn't take then like you have no immune system dude and you're mm. stuck there yeah. and it's really hey, risky. John Travolta, right 
Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, when he did the movie with the the boy in the bubble. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, wow. literally, I, that's what I was. I was in a I was in a hermetically sealed room mm. that like I couldn't leave for the better part of almost two weeks. But after 11 days, my numbers started to spike and then I was let go and I could go out into the world. It was July. It was hot as hell that year. And, uh, you know, had to relearn how to do everything. You know, I had dietary restrictions. I had physical restrictions, you know, because like my blood counts were still a little shaky and, you know, we did it with barely enough stem cell to do an autologous Mm. stem cell transplant and uh you know i didn't even ask what the next like i didn't even ask the question of like what happens if this doesn't work what do we do next i didn't which is so out of character for me because i want to know what's going to happen um yeah and then i had a hundred day window between being let out and being told i was good Mm. where things were monitored i had to change the way i ate i had to be physically active to the best of my ability like it was sometimes it was hard to walk down the block um and come back. So it was, it was a process, but my mom was there for all of it. My dad was there for all of it. We would take little walks down to the river and sit on the bench by the Hudson. I lived in the upper West at the time. And, you know, I actually have like, despite the fact that it was like a really shit time, I have some really, really good memories from that time. Yeah. Despite I what I was going imagine. through. Yeah. yeah. And that's, and that's something that I like, you know, I, I had a, I did an interview a while ago where, where someone asked, I always get asked like, what would you tell people who are going to be going through a similar situation and i used to try and come up with like good answers <laughs> <laughs> you know like things that i think people want to hear but really what i think the answer is and what i will st- what i will stick by is even though everything is total shit and like you're not like you're not happy you look like crap you feel like mm. crap everything mm. is scary everything is in flux and it's very destabilizing right find moments to have fun and make memories so that you can look back at that time and be like you know what that was terrible but these were the highlights and i can tell you what the highlight reel is like i know exactly if you were to ask me what the best times about that period of time were i know exactly what i would say because i well the the pizza party was one of them for sure um and then there was like you know there was a party at my apartment where we shaved my head and like everyone came over and you know it was the first time I did pot brownies, which was a whole mess in and of itself. But it's like lore amongst the friends that were there. Like yeah. to this day, you know, we still bring it up because it's still so funny. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, there was there was just stuff like that where, that were memory makers during a time that like I didn't think I would want to remember. Yeah. yeah. And I and there are parts of it where I absolutely do. And it's great. And I love looking back at it. Those friends that were there are still in my life to this day. You know, a lot of us are going, a lot of us are going on anywhere between like 13 to 18 years of friendship. And, mm. you know, and most of them were there in the hospital room with me. Wow. It, it's just incredible, you know, your story and what you've gone through and the fact that you saw the beauty in it, you know, in, in this turmoil if you will but you saw the beauty you saw who really stood there for you who stood at your side right because sometimes even family can't handle it and they leave too right oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) so (laughs) tell me tell me you you went through this incredible 
let's call it adventure because it sounds like you had your ups and you had your downs, right? Almost oh, yeah. like a roller coaster, <laughs> if you will, right? Yeah. You you went through this all your own ride. What motivated you? Because I, I'm thinking your parents had you read books when you were a child instead oh, yeah. of watching movies or listening to radio. What motivated you to say, I'm going to put this in a book? It actually had absolutely nothing to do with me, mm. uh, which I think is kind of strange. I had um, I'd met someone who had recently been told that they were cancer-free. It had been like a couple months. Mm. Uh, they had... I don't remember what stage it was. I want to say it was like stage two testicular cancer or something like that. Mm. And they went through treatment. They did all the things. And when I, I spoke to them, it was just like, you know, they, they had offered once I had like found out that they had been cancer free for a short period of time, I asked them how they were doing. And they basically gave me this rundown of like, I can't stand being around my friends. I am having a hard time talking to anyone or listening to anyone. I don't want to get up and go to work. I don't want to do anything. I just, I want to be left alone because it feels so unimportant. And this, at this point I had been three years out and that three year period of time was exactly that. It was like trying, it was questioning everything. Like, do I want to stay friends with these people? Like, and these are the people that were there. And I was like, I was like, why am I thinking this? Like, you know, and part of that I'll attribute to chemo brain. Cause that's a real thing. But the other part of it is just like, you question like life and your mortality and what, mm. what you're doing and how important it is. And does it really matter to go like sing and dance on a fucking stage somewhere in the middle of Indiana? Like who cares? Mm. Um, you know, and it was a lot of recalibrating things for myself. And when he said that to me and he was like, he and he was not a performer. Like he's a New Yorker, lives in Brooklyn. Like you know, his family's from here, generations deep. And he was just like, I don't know what to do. And we had this very long conversation about this. Mm. And I asked him questions, and he offered. He was very forthcoming with information. And you know, I barely knew this person. And you know, we we kind of compared notes essentially. Like, what was it like for you three years ago? Mm. And it was like, right, well, right, it was right. trash, and this is what happened. <laughs> Um, and then kind of realizing that there's truth to this. This is this seemed to be a universal truth because after I spoke with him, I called a couple other friends of mine who had gone through cancer experiences that were not similar to mine, but they were younger when they had it. And so I wanted to talk to them. Like, when you were done, like, how did you feel this, that, and the next thing? Mm-hmm. And every single one of them said the same thing mm-hmm. without me prompting them of anything. I just was like, how did you... You know, like, let, let me just ask you a quick question. And so it turned into a book and it turned into a book. Oh. And the, the, um, I, I had a lot of people talking into my ear about doing a one man show. And if I have to see another one man show, I'm going to just like, I just can't. I like, I'm just going to go jump in the Hudson. I can't do it. But like, yeah. so that, that wasn't appealing to me. And, uh, you know, I, like you said, grew up reading a lot. And so I was like, well, of course this is a book. Of course it is. It absolutely makes sense that it would be. And so the 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 purpose behind it was to kind of share this side of being a cancer survivor and patient and whatever else you want to call it that isn't really a conversation. You know, like like again, like I feel like a broken record just saying like the assumption is that when you're cancer free and you're told you're good to go that everything goes back to normal. And yeah. it's just like balloons and sparklers and, <laughs> yes. and birthday cake every year on your new cancer birthday. Like 
Yeah. And you can choose to do that, and that's fine, but that's so hollow. And it just wasn't how it was for me at all. It was like, oh, you're cancer-free. And I sat at my desk, and I had a good cry about it. And it was like, thank God that's over, you know, kind of thing. Mm. And then it was the real work, which was mm. re rebuilding a life that I thought I wanted because the one I had before was completely decimated. And so kind of picking and choosing from what I knew and re-implementing that back into my life and defaulting to some things just to get my footing again, because you don't, like, everything is different. Like you look different, you feel different, shit's mm. gone down that makes you be different. Like, yeah, you know, it, there's a lot to contend with. And so, you know, being able to, make that choice of like, I'm going to change the things that I want to change and putting that into writing and talking about those things and not just post-cancer, but during, mm -hmm. because I do talk about, you know, relationship changes during treatment and how people leave. And I do talk about sex and alcohol and drugs and, you know, <laughs> sex, drugs, and cancer, you know, like that, that's right. my favorite tagline so far. Um, because <laughs> it, it's not what is like portrayed in movies and TV and film. It's just kind mm -hmm. of like this, you're this sickly person that all, is all of a sudden better. And like, you know, there's a celebration with some fireworks and a picnic maybe, and everyone's there for you. And then all of a sudden that goes away mm. and they don't and really the, talk and they don't and talk about what there. happens when they go away. <laughs> right. Like yeah, you yeah. happily ever after doesn't end at happily ever after, you know, <laughs> like, and, and to a degree like surviving cancer, that's the happily ever after moment, but you still continue living so you have to figure that out and that's not really a conversation or or there and there at the time at least i don't think there weren't a whole lot of resources available to kind of have that conversation so i created one mm. I, you know the, the more you you talk and and you know I, i'm only imagining being that you're an avid reader yourself if you had read your book would that have helped you and then the other thing is I'm thinking that think of a, a, a big company and they rebranded themselves. Sounds like what that's what you did. You rebranded yourself. And then the other one is how would your book have helped you? Well, I mean, first of all, you hit the nail right on the head. I work in branding, marketing, and sales. So like that's, that's my jam. It's what I do. I love doing it. Um, I think if I would have read my book, I would have been like, who is this absolutely insane human being? But then also probably would have been like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what that feels like. Um, and because that's the point of view that I wrote it from. I didn't necessarily write it from my point of view. Like, yes, it is my story, in fact. But I wrote it from the headspace of someone like the person I met right after or the other friends that I had who had had mm -hmm. cancer, who looked in hindsight and were like, what just happened to me? Like it's shell shock in a way. Like there, there's definitely like a component of PTSD that's, that's kind of tied to it. And, you know, I, I wrote it with the intention of being able to say like, you're not crazy. Like what you're feeling is, is legit. Cause you are, you had a life and now you don't. And now mm -hmm. you need to figure out how to make that happen for yourself again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's wild. And and I just felt that I needed to get it out and to talk about it because I couldn't find anything that did. Everything was like cancer sucks or fuck cancer and burr, 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 burr. and those organizations organizations do great things, but it's not the conversation. Like 
duh, cancer sucks. And yes, fuck cancer. It sucks. Okay. What's the now solution? What? Yeah, right. Exactly. Now what? It's like, you're cancer free. Great. Okay. Now what? <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> the, it's the same thing. And I don't mean to call those organizations out by name and like shit on them, but like, cause again, they do great work. Cancer con is coming up in two weeks. I'm going to that. Um, and that's sponsored by cancer sucks, I believe. But you know, the, I, I'm so curious to see what that's going to be like, because one of the reasons I didn't implement going to support groups was because I didn't want to sit around all day and be sad with people who were sad. Yeah. And, and so again, I made this book as funny as I could make it because uh, there's a need for that. Like it keeps you on your toes and it keeps you entertained. And I had so much need to be entertained and I mm. also had so much need to be connected with, and I didn't get that part. Mm. Like yeah, I, I binged, part. I binged all of Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I had so did I. By the way, right? <laughs> yeah. Great like, show. All of that, I binged all of Gossip Girl and all of Smash and all of the things. But like, I still didn't have that piece where it was like, I like someone gets it. Like someone mm. is telling this version of what is going on. Um, you know, and being an actor and a writer, that's what we do anyway. So why not yeah. implement, why not implement that onto a page? Yeah. And you're also a producer. So let, let me ask you what's going on with your book. Should, should it be on Broadway? Should, should it be a, a sitcom? Should it be, what should it be? What, what's the next step for your book or for you creating this space to help more people? Do you know the show crazy ex-girlfriend? Oh yeah. That. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, already adapting the script. Some of the music is written. Um, I'm hoping to have this done by the end of the summer so we can go into pre-pro and kind of get like finance stuff in line to start shooting. Awesome. Um, but it's going to be very much, you know, like crazy ex-girlfriend is about like mental health, but they like make it very shiny and entertaining. Right. And then like Zoe's extended playlist, like that's about grief, but they make it very shiny and fun and entertaining. And so I'm going to do the same thing with cancer and survivorship and make it very, entertaining and glossy and fun mm. and i have a dark sense of humor so that'll be there too but it's right. very much <laughs> but it's awesome. very much it's very much in that vein and i think what i would love to do and this is kind of like the bigger larger picture that i'm i'm not even sure how to go about doing this necessarily um do you remember the show smash i just mentioned it but i didn't ask you if you knew what it was okay so it was like the making of this musical called bombshell and it was like all these broadway stars were in it and, and this and the next thing and in my like marketing brain i was sitting in my hospital watching the show and i was like there was a, an episode i don't remember which but i was like oh my god they're gonna put this on broadway the season is going to end and the show is going to be on Broadway and it's going to be this like weird, like meta experience where you're like, <laughs> wait a minute, I was just watching this on my computer. <sighs> um, and I think it would be really interesting and fun to do that with this where mm -hmm. it like is the book and then it's the TV show and then it becomes a musical. And I don't know if that's really the, the, the kind of path I'm going to take with this, but from it sounds a, pretty cool, actually from a marketing standpoint, yeah. like just, just the long game of that makes me very, very happy. It's one of the reasons I love watching Taylor Swift do what she does because her <sighs> long game, her long game on marketing and storytelling behind what she's doing is impeccable. She's amazing. Um, not that I have that kind of budget, 
And if I did, <laughs> there'd be no question. <laughs> Taylor, yes, would you like to produce this? <laughs> I think she would. I mean, if she uh, catches our show, and then Taylor should definitely reach out <laughs> because it would be an amazing, amazing show. You know, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today and, and coming up and showing up and, and entertaining us, and but also talking about a subject that affects so many, many people, and more so nowadays than it did back in the day you know back when your great-grandparents were around or we just didn't even know and they just passed away and we didn't know that so it, there is more um, happening with it and you talked about advancements in technology and in science and how things and people are, are getting to know by accident here's the crazy thing i didn't even think today when I put on this pink shirt, I did not think. It just, it was, it's what it was. What do you mean? Pink to support cancer, right? Oh, well, breast, cancer. breast cancer. Yeah, breast yeah, cancer. But yeah, yeah. It, it's just, to me, cancer is, has, it doesn't matter the color. It's just supporting it anyway. Like I told you, I have a good friend of mine who actually was, was one of my clients who is going through this terrible time and, yeah. They gave him weeks, but uh, I, I still pray for him every day and, and help him out any which way I can and hope that he does also come out of it and be brighter on the other side. But it did change him because his perspective, the way he sees things nowadays is so different. And he even said, Man, I didn't like who I was before. I say I that all the now. time. Right. I say that I'm like the guy that I was before cancer. He was a real asshole. <laughs> like, <laughs> glad he's dead. <laughs> he's gone. Right. right. But now you, you you come with so much more compassion and understanding, don't you? Uh yeah. I mean, I think it's it's less selfishness for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, right. you know, and and I would say to you with your your friend and your client, like go entertain them. You know, oh, go, I do. I do, go yeah. sit with them and juggle some something like, uh, you know, like anything to to brighten the day. You know, that's something like I said, like making memories within a period of time that's not great. You know, that's that's really what it's all about in my in my purview of things. Like it's really just, you know, shit situations are always going to happen in your lifetime, mm. and the way that you maneuver through them and figure out how to exist amongst them and get past them is really what counts. Because something yeah. bad is going to happen. It's inevitable. Life without bad things would not, would just be weird, right? Like, um, <laughs> I take it you're not a musical theater guy, but <clears throat> I will say that uh, in Into the Woods, which is a Stephen Sondheim musical, there's a line um, that says, if life were made of moments, even now and then a bad one, uh, if life were made of moments, then you'd never know that you had one. Mm. And so that's kind of like if if everything was the same every single day, you would never know if something good or bad had happened at all. Yeah. And life so it's just boring. these right, it's yeah. just these moments that happened, you know, like and life is made of moments. You know, it's not like I'm not gonna remember every single day, every single minute of every single day, but like moments that happen are the things that your memory stores away. And so being able to create them in a time that's not good our brains tend to romanticize thing, things anyway mm -hmm. you know why not have an actual good memory to look back on in a time uh -huh. where where things were not so great 
I, I love your word of, of advice for everybody to go and support someone if you do know someone in any situation. And it's not just cancer, but anybody going through anything that can be detrimental to their health and just go be there and support them and make them laugh. I think laughter is one of the best medicines that we should em em implore and use daily, even, even when people are going through a hard time. I mean, if we can make them laugh, and a lot of people will be in the room, they'll go, why are you trying to be, make them laugh? So because it brings a smile. Why wouldn't I? Face. Who yeah, doesn't want people to? doesn't want people to laugh? What is wrong yes. with that person? Well, because you know that they're in the doom and gloom type of you know. But we we gotta enjoy every minute, right? No matter yeah. what it is. I used to tell people uh, that came to visit me like no crying in my room, absolutely mm -hmm. none. I was like, if you need to cry, that's fine, but leave the room. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and that's you know, part of it, maybe that's a fun, tricky way to brainwash myself during that period of time. But it really is just like the support and the entertainment and the ability to like laugh during anything, you know, like it's where the dark sense of humor kind of comes from. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, I I've, I've had such a great time getting to know you today. And I know that our connection is going to stay long for a very, very, very long time. And I appreciate you and I appreciate everything you're doing. I can't wait not only to see your, to read your book, but to see your show on TV and go to Broadway to check out the actual show. Because I've been to a few Broadway shows. Here's you know? <laughs> what have you seen? <laughs> well, when we, when we can imagine it, we can make it happen. So I am rooting for you. And making sure that Taylor Swift knows that you need to make this happen. Right, you hear that, Taylor? <laughs> Let's go. That's right, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my friend. Do me a favor. Stick around for a minute. We're going to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you again for being here with me today. I really appreciate you. Everybody. Thank you so much. You too. Make today an exceptional day. And laugh. Laugh.